Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign policy podcast in America. I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Starr. Today's show will explore the extent to which Donald Trump's kleptocracy has harmed America and what needs to be done to ensure that another kleptocrat doesn't win the U.S. presidency. Helping us to break this all down are Andrea Chalupa and Sarah Kinzior, the co-hosts of the wildly popular podcast Gas Lit Nation. Since 2017, Sarah has been covering the transformation of the U.S. under the Trump administration, writing on authoritarian tactics, kleptocracy, racism, xenophobia, media, voting rights, technology, the environment, and the Russian interference case, among other topics. She is an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, where she focuses primarily on U.S. politics. And she also has a new book out called Hiding in Plain Sight, a history of the past 40 years of American decline and how Trump and his cohort both enabled and benefited from elite criminal impunity. Andrea, a journalist and filmmaker, has been on the front lines of fighting disinformation and misinformation about Ukraine. In 2014, she led a campaign called Digital Maidan that took to social media to debunk false narratives about Ukraine. She also wrote and produced the film Mr. Jones, which tells the story of Gareth Jones, a journalist from Wales who traveled to the USSR in 1933 and uncovered the truth about the Holodomor and the man-made famine in Ukraine in which millions died. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to y'all for a minute. I mean, you know, this, but I think this whole pandemic has just had us in the shits. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd be doing this over dinner, so this is as close as we can get now. Pretty, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, you know, and I think you all have devoted your podcast to analyzing and investigating and critiquing the fuckery of the Trump administration in a wide variety of ways. And I feel like you're, you all do a great job of talking to the general American public in simple terms about what this all means. And my interest as somebody who focuses on foreign policy is I think we can't really talk about foreign policy in America without talking about the fact that Donald Trump is a thief, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a kleptocratic thief, but not any type of thief. He's somebody who according to extensive reporting by the Washington Post and the New York Times, allegedly inflates his wealth, lies about his tax filings, uses the White House to grow his wealth, and has essentially turned the U.S. government into a job recruitment firm for his unqualified friends and family to get jobs and enrich themselves, particularly Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. So I want either one of y'all to jump in on this. So just just to explain what a kleptocracy is and how Trump has turned the White House 
into a kleptocracy. Sure, I'll I'll take that one. Kleptocracy literally translates into rule by thieves, and that is exactly what he's done. You know, Trump is a career criminal. He was a criminal before he came into the White House. He was involved in organized crime first with the Italian mafia, then as that mafia uh, was chased out by his pal Giuliani, the Russian mafia moved in, and that's who's been bankrolling Trump projects. Um, you know, starting mostly in the '90s, but beforehand you see uh, the precursors of this when a lot of members of the Russian mafia moved into Trump Tower and basically used it um, as their dorm. And so this is Trump's world. You know, he was trained by Roy Cohn, uh, the infamous corrupt lawyer. He was uh, Joe McCarthy's lawyer. He was the lawyer for the five crime families in New York, uh, a key figure in, um, you know, the, the dark arts of media and politics. And so when Trump came in, it was never with the intention to govern. It was with the intention to steal and with the intention to rule. And that's the point that we're at now. You know, another uh, useful word for everyone to know is autocrat, which literally translates to the rule of one person. Uh, it's, it's good to break down these words, by the way. I, I recommend everybody uh, look up the Greek origins. If you see krat, that just refers to power. And so you could see how that power is being expressed. Um, and so that's where we're at now is that's why he came in. Uh, that's, you know, what he's done in the White House is the same thing that kleptocrats do all around the world. They install their family members. They abuse executive power to enhance their personal wealth. They don't care at all about the well-being of the public, except as a basically an ATM, uh, you know, from which they can take our tax dollars and redistribute it to their elite cronies. And that's what he's been doing for four years with, you know, very little effective pushback from the institutions that are supposed to protect us. Anytime I go to Ukraine, People ask me about how Trump got into office and they they're, they're and, and this includes my close friends. This includes people who are in elected office who, of course, will speak to me privately because they would never speak candidly about Trump publicly. But a lot of them ask, how does a kleptocrat win the White House when we are supposed to be the most powerful democracy on earth? Yeah, I think I think Ukrainians have an advantage in this situation that Americans did not in 2016. And that is Ukraine knew not to underestimate Kremlin aggression. So, for instance, uh, in 2016, in the U.S. election, as well as in the Brexit election in the U.K., you had a sweeping uh, social media disinformation campaign ran by the Kremlin and you had Twitter bots going after the Brexit vote. You had the Kremlin on every available social media platform, including uh, targeting and suppressing the black vote deliberately in 2016. And then in addition to that, in the U.S. election, you, of course, had the Russian hacking, a stealing, stealing Water Watergate style um, information files from the Democratic Party and then weaponizing that information. And so when you had election hacking in Ukraine by the Kremlin, Ukraine instantly caught it and stopped it because they knew not to underestimate the Kremlin. They knew what they were dealing with. And you have the same uh, awareness, the same vigilance in, of Ukrainians when it comes to combating Kremlin disinformation over there. And so I think Americans just were caught off guard. There's this mythology of American exceptionalism that it could never happen here. And there was also this, uh, they just underestimated the Kremlin threat. And this, of course, includes very much so 
the Obama White House. And there's an excellent, excellent book that does the forensics on how Obama and his foreign policy team were caught off guard by Putin's attack on our democracy. And that book is called Rigged by David Scheimer. So I think the reason why it happened in the U.S. in 2016 and why a Kremlin proxy was essentially installed by Putin was because Americans did not have the direct knowledge, the, the history or any of it. Ukrainians did it in knowing not to underestimate the Kremlin and what it was capable of. I think that's a that's an interesting point. I also would be remiss if I didn't add the fact that people of color, black folks, namely, we saw it from miles away. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you guys were the only you guys are the only ones. It really it was it was people of color as black people. And it was anybody that um, had any direct knowledge, direct experience with authoritarian regimes, with police states. It was those people that were trying to warn uh, the white male lens of mainstream media, the pundits, the, the, the Chuck Todd industrial complex, as we call it, that were basically just shrugging all these threats off, ignoring them and boosting Trump as this entertaining, morbid reality show. I want us to kind of go into the implications of this kleptocratic behavior over the past four years and what this means as people are already going to the polls. We see record numbers of people coming out you know, this is America. Anything can happen. There is voter suppression that's taking place uh, as as we speak. But Sarah, do you mind going into how much this kleptocracy has harmed American institutions that have already shown signs of of, of weak of, of weaknesses? And what will it mean if Trump gets another four years? Oh, we're we're in serious trouble now. We're in much worse trouble if he gets four years. Um, you know, first to your point, our institutions were weak before he got in. That is, in fact, how he got in is we've had, you know, decades of uh, no accountability for horrific crises, whether uh, the 2008 financial collapse from which most of the country did not recover from the illegal wars of George Bush, from Iran-Contra, which I, I think is the real uh, precursor to what we're seeing now. And you see a lot of the same people and also just all of these uh, illicit and illegal maneuvers by quote-unquote consultants like Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, this entire uh, complex of uh, you know, of elite criminal impunity, um, you know, that is at its core, you know, abusive, racist, uh, utterly lacking in any obligation to the public, any interest to the public. And it um, it tends to flow above, uh, you know, law, you know, that is what their, their tactics always were, um, you know, going back decades. And with Trump in office, they now have the capacity to literally rewrite the laws in order to protect themselves. They have the capacity to shut down investigations. They have somebody like Bill Barr, who should be functioning as the attorney general for the United States, working against American interests in order to protect Donald Trump and his crime cult. And so what they've done is the same things that any aspiring dictatorship does. They have packed courts. They have purged agencies. They have gutted institutions. They have removed any kind of objective uh, qualifier for who fills the role of public servants and civil servants. They've packed them uh, instead with lackeys or they've left positions unfilled. Um, 
We've seen a record number of acting uh, directors and, uh, you know, even for like a year, I think we had no uh, secretary of defense. People just kind of go on like like this is a normal thing or that this, uh, you know, that the country could possibly hold under these conditions. Of course it can't. And I think that um, the coronavirus crisis, more than anything, uh, brought that home, that we need a functioning federal government. We need need a government that is accountable to the public and that has the interest of the public at heart. And because the only interest of this government is continuing to carry out these kleptocratic endeavors, continuing to enrich themselves through illegal uh, foreign deals, through the selling of information or weaponry or uh, you know the infrastructure that they want to take apart um, and literally sell off to other countries, that's what they're after. So if you have a second term of this, um, I mean, I can see a variety of, of disasters situations. Like first, we could probably move, uh, you know, much more uh, overtly into full fascism. Uh, Right now, we're obviously not at that point or we wouldn't be able to have this kind of conversation, but we would likely see greater, uh, you know, repression of free speech, uh, freedom of media, freedom of assembly. Uh, You know, they've increasingly stopped hiding their kleptocratic and autocratic ambitions. We've seen people like Mike Lee, uh, the senator, for example, saying that America is not a democracy. So they're now being openly anti-democratic, whereas you know initially they would try uh, to cover this up. We would see that reflected, I think, most in the courts. We might see that even if Biden wins because of the uh, appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. So we're headed down um, a very dark road. And another thing I worry about is the destruction of the United States, because that's where Trump is really different than autocratic uh, predecessors, than you know famous fascists like uh, Hitler or Stalin, who wanted to embody the state, who wanted to expand the state, who wanted to create a, a strong state based around them as an individual. Trump does not care if the United States falls apart. He wants to profit off of that destruction, and he is surrounded by disaster capitalists that have the same goal. So for example, if there are secessionist movements that start if Trump gets a second term, uh, he will. they will encourage that because a carved up country is a lot easier to hijack and strip down for parts and steal resources from. And he knows this because he is backed by the same people uh, that profited off the destruction of the Soviet Union, including Russian oligarchs or advisors and people like uh, Paul Manafort, that model of uh, separating a country into uh, individual republics, though it does not share the same history, and let me be very strong in stating that, because as we all know, the individual republics of the Soviet Union were imperial subjects. They were conquered by Russia. Most of them did not want to be part of the Soviet Union, and there were genuine movements uh, for independence that existed throughout the entirety um, of the Soviet Union's existence. So this is not an analogous situation in that respect, but in the sense of what happened after the Soviet Union collapsed, where you see all of these terrible people coming in to make money, you see all these violent wars uh, over resources, uh, all this hyper-capitalism and mobster activity, that is what they want for the United States. And it's incredibly dangerous. So I could see us going in either direction, but both ways, it would just be an absolute travesty if uh, he is reinstalled for a second term. So we need to do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen.
Yeah. And I want to add to that horror show what you're going to see. It's going to be show trial time. You already have the attorney general of the United States acting like the president's personal lawyer and going after the president's enemies and and leading a, a literal cover up of the Mueller report, refusing us refusing to release the unredacted Mueller. And right now you have Bill Barr traveling the country, traveling the country and giving speeches about law and order and telling his audience to you know be careful on who they vote for this is a, a gross violation of the hatch act where employees federal workers that are paid for with our tax dollars are not allowed to make political statements make political acts and this is what the attorney general of the united states is doing right now and so i think what we're going to get into is everything sarah described and i want to underline also as well the successionist movements because i know that sounds far-fetched to some people but what you have had for the last several years is uh the kremlin funding um right-wing groups or like or um, pushing right-wing right-wing groups in, in in the in the states that are that are teasing with cal exit and 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 Texas, Texas, sorry, you have to forgive me. I barely slept last night because of, of what we're talking about. All this stuff is like, is keeping me up at night because it's because I've, I've seen this in Ukraine. You, you, and, you and I have covered this in Ukraine. And so for us, this, these aren't abstract ideas. This is a, a reality that can happen. And um, so if, if they sneak in, if, if they can, if the electoral, if the electoral college vote is very close, and they find some way to shut it down. They, they go to the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett on it. We're in for a horrendous, horrendous uh, ratcheting up of what we've already been undergoing. And that is just a consolidation of power that I don't think Americans are prepared for because part of the strategy of what they do is shock. They try to shock us into being demoralized. So you're going to see a lot of abuse of power that is going to make the first four years of the Trump administration seem tame. I really do believe that if they if they manage to steal this election. I want to really get into what you said about Americans not really appreciating what's happening right now. And it goes to another question of when have we ever all, all racial groups of people, regardless of how you identify, be it gender, ethnicity or your religion when in this country's history have we all collectively felt pain about a threat or an attack on our country and i would point out the september 11 attacks and that was for me the first time when americans collectively felt pain and there's a whole lot to go into in regards to colonialism and imperialism in the Middle East. But based on the attack, that was the time when you saw this conversation about all Americans uniting and you saw the national media taking that narrative. One great American thinker who added some unique context to that was Cornell West. He simply stated that on that day, America was niggerized. And he used that language, which I thought was very needed and necessary and precise, all to say that this day was the first time when all Americans felt the pain, the historical pain of black people. But as opposed to it happening over centuries, 
a lot of white Americans felt it on that one day. And he was heavily criticized for it. But to me, I feel like those words are aging well over time. And I think that that collective history that black people have experienced is what take us to the polls. That's why you see record numbers of folks coming out, but you see record numbers happening across this country. But I think one of the reasons why uh, we don't see this collective sense of urgency over Trump in 2016 was because they did not foresee a president who would treat COVID-19 like it was no big deal or would make a mockery of our institutions or really doesn't care about um, the very white people who got him elected in the office, right? And so that that's the thing. And so I don't know if one of you want to tap into that, but I think that's the thing. So you have a bunch of white Americans who feel that Trump personifies everything that they want to be, but he doesn't give a damn about them. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the last four years have brought home uh, for a lot of white people who did not understand historically what black Americans have been through or the types of oppressive policies that still endure now. Uh, I think that they finally are beginning to grasp uh, the severity of that. For example, I think most white Americans were not worried until this election that their vote would not be counted. They were not part of the disenfranchised uh, population. And so they were often very willing to overlook the constant threat of uh, voting uh, suppression towards black Americans, uh, towards Latino Americans, or any other marginalized group. You know, I had I saw pundits back in 2016 when I would raise something like the partial repeal of the VRA and that it's going to disenfranchise uh, anybody who's in an, an ethnic minority. Um, you know, they, they dismiss this as a wild conspiracy theory. But of course, that's exactly what happened in many states. And then you see the same thing with coronavirus. What you're seeing from Trump is he is perfectly fine with letting white Americans die. And so for the first time, I think, white Americans are feeling that sense of, oh, so I'm just disposable. Like, I, I could just die. I could just be killed off by the government, and absolutely no one's going to come to my defense. Nobody's going to make a big deal out of it. It's going to be normalized. It's going to be swept under the rug. And I want to be clear here that the crisis that black Americans are facing now is much, much worse than the crisis that white Americans are facing now. White Americans are getting a taste of what that is like. And I'm hoping that it creates a broader sense of empathy and a sense of historical understanding. But then, of course, we have a white supremacist government. We have a regime that is not only enacting brutal, vicious policies uh, against you know Americans who aren't white, as well as uh, you know kind of taking white Americans along for the ride on things like coronavirus. They're trying to rewrite history. They're trying to forbid uh, accurate discussion. They're trying to protect Confederate monuments. Um, you know, and those are all the typical tactics of dictatorship. But yeah, I, I think whatever sense of collective unity we had after 9-11, after being the victim 
of an attack, um, you know, which was, of course, then exploited by the Bush administration uh, towards their own ends. That that sense is somewhat gone, but I do think that the country as a whole is much more against uh, Trump than is portrayed. And I'm saying this coming from Missouri, you know, which which did vote for Trump, and obviously there are still um, you know Trump supporters here. There are still people who wave Confederate flags here. But I think this whole idea that it's 45 percent of the population, it's I don't think it's that high. You know, he, his approval rating has always been the lowest of any president in American history, and his support has dwindled over time. Where I think his supporters are is in business, in corporations, in corporate media. They have a vested interest in portraying the support for Trump from the ground as higher than it is because it allows them to justify their own racist and bigoted beliefs. Uh, It allows them to justify the way that they run their own industries. And they'd love to pin all of that cruelty, all of that prejudice on some rando in a diner. You know, that's why we get these articles like from the New York Times where they're actually going out and interviewing GOP, um, you know, organizers and so forth, you know, very uh, privileged people who've been working for the Republican Party for a long time. They'll pre- they'll present that as a man on the street kind of take. Whereas what I see from the man on the street is that everyone is disillusioned. Everyone is terrified because of the pandemic and the way that's being handled. People are frustrated. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote for Joe Biden, but this idea that that most Americans or even half think that Trump is some kind of savior or that they don't recognize that we're in a massive crisis, um, I, I think that's incorrect. And you know, the last thing I'll say though is that the Trump fans that remain have it's the most fanatical of the base. It's the most violent. It's the most dangerous. And that is something I'm worried about. Uh, you know, I'm worried about it now, but especially after the election, is that that fan base, which has already shown their proclivity towards violence, is going to be encouraged by Trump and by others in the administration uh, into, you know, uh, acts of violence, into hate crimes. And we saw that in 2016 um, as well. And so, yeah, we're, we're in a bad place. But it's true that um, I think white people have learned, hopefully, an important lesson of the last four years about democracy and about, you know, laws are only as good as the people who will uphold them. And they're seeing, um, you know, that those laws are often, you know, not uphold, not upheld in uh, the interest of the people as well. And that's always been the case uh, for black Americans. And it's increasingly so for white Americans. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt that a lot of white people woke up to white supremacy when their own lives were threatened. And that's really what's happening. But um, I would also add that there's a lot of, quote unquote, normal looking white people in the suburbs who aren't the Nazi brown shirts of Trump supporters that we're reading about in in the press. There's a lot of Trump supporters out there that are still, you know, your your white men and women in the suburbs that are putting up Trump signs. I, I see them. I see them in Virginia, where my parents live. You drive around, you see Trump signs everywhere. And so I think um, his support still remains strong. And it's not just the militias. It's also just normal white men and women who are happy holding on to their power. They're happy about how strong Trump is on the border. 
They're not at all horrified by the kids in cages. They think that's perfectly justified. I know because I've been making phone calls to get out the vote for Biden in swing states. And I got into it. I got into it with a, an older couple that were, were, you know, were coming up with all sorts of excuses, some that we heard in the final debate between Trump and Biden, where Trump was saying things, oh, those kids are well treated. That's why normal looking white men and women who aren't all ramboed up with their tactical gear support Trump. Um, so I, I, I do think that um, we're, we're not at the point yet in America where um, people are shamed underground where they belong. You know, the KKK has to speak with coded language and coded numbers and all those things because for a very long time they were shamed underground. And, I, and Trump has allowed those people to come out and it's normalized. And I see that normalization with all of these Trump bumper stickers and, and yard signs and all these beautiful white picket fence houses in, in the suburbs in Virginia. So that's why I'm, I'm just cautioning people that some of these states could be closer than the polls are showing. I hope that's not the case. I hope it's a landslide victory. I hope there's no way, there's no gray area where Trump's goon squad of lawyers can come in and steal this, just like Trump's goon squad of lawyers shut down the vote recount in 2016. But the, the point is, is that we still in America haven't reached that tipping point where uh, the MAGA hats and the Trump signs are Nazi flags yet. There's still a lot of empowerment and pride there. And that is being upheld by this consolidation of right wing media in America, where you have Fox News, you have Sinclair Broadcasting gobbling up local news across the country, you have local newspapers, independent papers disappearing because hedge funds are buying them up and, and laying people off. And you have right wing radio. So America is suffering from a disinformation virus. And if you look at the sweeping progressive landslide in New Zealand, where um, where the New Zealand government was rewarded with a massive mandate to stay in power and to continue their good governance and transparency, where New Zealand shut down the coronavirus, you know, all of this led by a woman, of course. Um, it, and the and the question was raised: How is New Zealand functioning so strongly and 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 is united so strongly in crisis? And the answer came back from from a political leader in New Zealand. They said, "We don't have Rupert Murdoch in New Zealand. There's no right wing crazy media." presence in New Zealand. And, and that is really um, a big, big, big part of this, which which this is where the normalization comes from. This is where the echo of Trump's talking points come from. This is why you see the suburbs in swing states, battleground states still dotted with Trump signs. It's, it's you know, normal leave it to beaver families are happy with their white supremacy and they want to uphold it. Let's talk about media. You're correct in that we have this avalanche of conservative disinformation media that parades as journalism. One of my critiques, and I know that both of you will agree with me, is how even our establishment media talk about Trump. What I'll say is that outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, Many of them do an outstanding job of doing the necessary work to access his tax information, his financial dealings. That part is excellent. What's missing in the discourse when we talk about the, the Chuck Dodd Industrial Complex, for example, it, it is the analysis. It's the 
it's, it's the knowledge. It's the having the real hard conversations about the state of this country, talking about white people being satisfied with their white supremacy. We don't have enough of these conversations that interrogate whiteness. And really, that's really at the heart of a lot of this because it's the whiteness that allows somebody like Trump to be a kleptocrat, right? And one of a, a one of the hallmarks of a kleptocrat is stealing money and lying about it. So the New York Times in their recent series of stories about his taxes notes several things. One, he has some $300 million in loans that are due to be paid back within the next four years. And also this ongoing audit with the Internal Revenue Service over the, over the legitimacy of $72.9 million uh, in a tax refund that he claimed. And he received after declaring huge losses. And also the fact that out of 10 of the previous 15 years, he paid no income taxes. In two of those years, he paid only $750. Now, I'm not, you know, there, there are a whole lot of complications and all that. But the main thing, the main takeaway from all of this is that Trump has been dishonest about these dealings. That's what the reporting clearly shows. How is it that in media, and I'm not talking about the analysts. I'm talking about the journalists. I'm talking about the Sunday shows. Why don't we talk about Trump in terms of being a thief, in terms of being a kleptocrat? Because if this was Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine, we would. We've talked about Putin in this nature. We've talked about other countries. Why not the U.S. president? Uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. So if, if Donald Trump were a black man with all these wives with, who gave him different children and porn star affairs and, and stealing, you would have the media. Obviously, he would never become president in the first place if he were black, clearly. And you would have the media framing him as this uh, welfare queen, as this pimp, all of the stereotypes they, they use to present one single harmful image of black America to the rest of America and the world. And so Donald Trump becoming president of the United States is very clearly what white supremacy looks like. And the reason why it was allowed to happen is because our media is largely created by white men. Um, and there are white women, of course, sprinkled throughout media, but it's primarily white men. So getting our news from a white male lens where white men like Brian Williams are allowed to fail upward, where, where journalists like Brian Williams can full on fabricate stories to make to create a good yarn where he was in Iraq and he invented some some crazy tall tale that he liked to go on TV Not and get me started and, on that we, and tell. We, you, you that, that, that drove me through the fucking roof. You know, the problem is, is that uh, it's these white people cloistered in their wealth and their white supremacy who are not going to feel the and their children are not going to feel uh, the existential threat of a Trump White House and, or an Ivanka Trump White House and what comes next. And one of the reasons why 
Aryan princess Ivanka Trump is able to skate above the fold. You had the New York Times just come out with a piece normalizing Ivanka Trump, showing her glittery in Wisconsin cooing about ice cream. And you read it and there's nothing about um, the authoritarian context of how soft glittery women like her are used to soft and strong men and make their their uh, make them more palpable. You had a um, in a separate article for I forget I think maybe Reuters or AP. You had a woman being interviewed in a battleground state saying that Trump empowers women. Look at how Ivanka is doing so well in his White House. Look at how he empowers Ivanka. If that shows the success of of Ivanka furthering what she's supposed to further, which is normalizing her monster dad, who she directly profits from from all the money that she you know she's earned in the white house and and how she's enriched herself there and so all of this is to say that if the trump family were black they would have never ever in a million years gotten into the white house in the first place and they would have been destroyed by the media they would have been buried in in harmful horrific black stereotypes that the media likes to you know depend on and those and those stereotypes are so dangerous that there was even a, a crowdsourced website showing um trying to cover uh black news stories by 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 hand selecting new photos because the media was putting in the worst photos there and we saw that in, in a social Social media movement where um, black men and women are on Twitter were saying, if I'm if I'm arrested, this is the photo the media will use, the most unflattering, menacing-looking photo of me possible. Where when this is who I really am, I'm a valedictorian. I'm this. I'm this and that. And so, when they gun me down, that's what you're talking about, right? I remember yeah. That. And so the whole point is, is that the overwhelmingly white male media r- covers black America in such a way to reveal itself as scared of black America, of not wanting to empower black America and instead empowering those who are going to keep black America down. There's no other. It's all in front of us. And anybody that wants to argue with that, look at the fact that Donald Trump became president of the United States. That tells you everything right there. And then ask yourself, could the Trump family come to power if they're black? The answer is a resounding absolutely not. Yeah, and I just want to add one thing on that with the mainstream media. Um, you know, we saw over the summer that the the tenor of the coverage is not accidental. It never was. Um, you know, they'd always try to go into this plausible deniability about their own racism within their institutions. But it really came to a head this summer at the New York Times, which I've referred to as highbrow Breitbart, because that is basically how they function outside of those investigations that you mentioned, Terrell, you know, with the taxes and so forth, which, by the way, the way, they basically are just handed those documents. So I, I don't have a huge amount of respect for those investigations. Nonetheless, that's their, their most useful role. And where they fail, as you noted, is in analysis. And over the summer, you know, in the midst of violent, uh, you know, attacks on black protesters, they solicit Tom Cotton to write an op-ed encouraging the military to fire on its own citizens, to fire on fellow Americans. And what that showed is that the New York Times does not see black Americans as fellow Americans. And it took the black members of the New York Times, you know, their reporters and their op-ed columnists, raising a fuss internally and really putting their careers and their livelihoods at risk to get them, uh, you know, to to kind of condemn that op-ed and then also have their op-ed, uh, you know, editor leave as well as one of their most bigoted columnists, Barry Weiss, leave that still leaves a lot of bigoted 
columnists in place, but that is the um, <laughs> that's the internal culture of that paper, and I believe that is also the internal culture of most uh, American mainstream news outlets. You know, the degree to which that is there or that it's apparent to the outside varies from place to place, and of course, in every place, uh, you find you know many good journalists that are able to produce quality work despite these conditions. But that is the dominant culture, and they get so enraged when people point that out. They get absolutely furious. They get vengeful. And it's because they need that culture. They need that culture of white supremacy to justify their continued mediocrity and their failure and to justify their lust for power and proximity to power. That is the value system. It's not about delivering truth to the public. It's not about afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted as the old journalistic adage goes. It's about protecting themselves and white mediocrity. And we have seen the very dire consequences of that kind of uh, rationale over the last four years. So this is a perfect opportunity to go into Andrea's uh, film, Mr. Jones. And we know that a New York Times reporter falsely reported about about the famine in Ukraine. Uh, and so I watched the film. It's outstanding. I definitely recommend you go and and, and, and watch it. And, 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 and Andrea, you could tell us exactly where we can go because I forgot it, but I saw it was it's outstanding. And so uh, I just want you to talk about Mr. Jones and, and how, you know, a, a journalist came in from the West and basically uncover the truth about Ukraine and what this means for about the narrative of truth telling in media and why people would want to tell stories that, 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 that about Ukraine in this instance that aren't true. Yeah, so um, my film, Mr. Jones, is a feature film. It's not a documentary. It's a film with actors, extraordinary actors, including James Norton, who is in Little Women and is uh, the odds maker favorite to be the next James Bond. He's a super talented British actor. It also stars Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret on The Crown, and the great Peter Sarsgaard. And um, it's directed by three-time Academy Award nominee Agnieszka Holland, who directed the Holocaust classic film Europa Europa, and she's done episodes of The Wire and House of Cards. She's just a master filmmaker. And Mr. Jones is, as you said, the story, of, it's all, it's based on a true story of a young, ambitious Welsh journalist that goes inside Ukraine at the height of Stalin's genocide famine that deliberately mass murdered millions. This was, this was colonization of Ukraine by the Kremlin. And he comes out and he blows a lid off this thing. And the big fancy Western reporters in Moscow, namely Walter Durante, the Pulitzer Prize winning Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times, all band together and publish articles calling him a liar. Uh, they're doing this because they're in the pocket of the Kremlin or they're trying to protect their access to the Kremlin. So basically, and, and, and as a result, um, the truth gets covered up successfully for generations. The truth is muddled and, there's, and the disinformation on what really happened in Ukraine continues. And even to this day, as a result of all this, most people have never heard of the, of the Holodomor, Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. 
Ukraine because they are so successful. And so this is a horror story of access journalism and how dangerous careerists are in the media. Journalists that put their careers above human life should not be journalists. Uh, journalism should be dangerous. It's a public service. And and Mr. Jones, the young Gareth Jones, who lends his name to the film, he exemplifies what a true journalist must be if we have any chance of protecting human rights and, and achieving equality. So um, it's a riveting tale. It's it's um, it's fictionalized, of course, in parts. And George Orwell makes an appearance, um, as you'll see. Um, so and you can watch it on Amazon, iTunes, uh, video on demand on, on your TV and all of it. And the film surprisingly did extraordinarily well for being an indie film about genocide during a very dark year of 2020. It was trending in um, the top 10 downloads of um, iTunes and Amazon this summer. It was like a hit summer film, which is really shocking. And I think the reason why is because the word of mouth spread because it's, it's about today. It's about the horrors of access journalism today. It's about the great New York Times letting the American people down today. Like, as Mr. Jones was coming out, you had the Tom Cotton piece being published in the New York Times saying, send in the troops. Let's have full-blown fascism. People are horrified of the New York Times for all the reasons Sarah listed. I, you know, so I think, you know, obviously Mr. Jones certainly strikes a nerve. And also it exposes how um, Kremlin aggression depends on Western corruption, including corruption in the media to, in order to be successful. And that is what we saw in the rise of the Trump crime family in 2016 and, and how it, you know it took so long for people to finally uh, take seriously Trump, Putin and Russia. The media was uh, muddling the truth there and writing hit pieces against those that dared to speak out against what was happening. So um, unfortunately, unfortunately, Mr. Jones has become timely because all of this abuse of power is repeating. And um, it started out as a as a passion project of mine 14 years ago to honor my grandfather who lived through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. This was supposed to be a gift for him, for my family, to bring healing to countless victims. And I never in a million years would have imagined that it that all of this would be happening again. So that was a shock to me. That was that's still very surreal. To, and um, so I encourage people to watch it because history is human nature and that's why it repeats and we have to learn from history because we're learning our, about ourselves and so please go check out mr jones it's so important that this history gets out there and just um understanding this little known genocide helps bring justice to all those who suffered through it absolutely again i love the film i'm so happy that despite all the challenges that came out in you know getting the film made like a lot of filmmakers have this made it to a screen. I love it. And as a friend, I'm happy that you're able to do it. And I'm looking oh, really? forward to it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that means so much to me. You have no idea. Because you saw, like, Terrell is a dear friend of mine. And so he would be over at my apartment in Brooklyn just hearing me sob about all the stuff I had to go through to get this film made. And he watched an early cut and gave me notes on an early cut. And, and you know, and so it, it means so much for me to hear you say that after watching the final cut. And I, and I take that to heart so thank you of course so i need to read sarah's new book hiding in plain sight again it's a history of the past 40 years of america american decline and how trump and his uh, his uh cast of, of thieves enabled to benefit it from um from criminal activity so sarah talk about your book 
and what people will get uh, forget from reading Hiding it in Plain Sight. Yeah, so, you know, as you said, uh, it takes us through the last 40 years of American history um, and then the hijacking of our country by the Kremlin asset uh, criminal president. Um, you know, but it gives the, the it, it gives sheds light on the conditions that led to that. It also is the story of, you know, my life. Um, I think all of our lives, anybody who's, you know, like in their early 40s or younger has never seen anything other than these Reagan era, um, you know, Republican ambitions coming to fruition over a matter of decades, uh, events like the collapse of the Soviet Union and these interconnected nexes between uh, oligarchs, plutocrats, mafiosos, creating, you know, a new economic culture, a new political culture. A lot of this happened. I mean, it's called hiding in plain sight because it, it happened right under our noses, but there is very little uh, light shed on the severity of the threat to democracy. There is very little prosecution of criminal actors. And in the book, I go into people like Roy Cohn or Jeffrey Epstein that are, um, you know, peripheral. Uh, or, and I don't mean they're, they're central, honestly, to what Trump has done, but they're kind of considered uh, side players. But, you know, this is a story of elite criminal impunity. It's the story of democratic decline. And it's a story of what happens when people refuse to look on honestly, at an emerging crisis and confront it with the goal of uh, preventing the suffering of, of their fellow citizens, their fellow Americans in mind. Um, you know, we should never, ever take our democracy and our freedoms for granted. And I wrote this book in 2019. Uh, you know, it's now been like a year and a half. And when I wrote it, you know, my editor thought this is very dark or this is very improbable. And who is this Jeffrey Epstein guy? And why is he in your book? This is before before he was arrested. Um, you know, and unfortunately, the events of the book have, it's really borne out. It's really held up well. Uh, the tone of it has held up well, unfortunately, in the pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to a time where it is dated, where people pick it up decades from now and they say, what the fuck? I, sorry, what the hell is this shit? Like, I cannot believe this actually happened. Can you believe they didn't do anything about it? Like, I, I wanted to read like fiction. And I feel the same way about my previous book. The View from Flyover Country, also a very dire and depressing collection of essays on uh, American life. You know, I, I, I want these to be unrelatable narratives instead of preludes to an increasingly worse future. So let's all hope, uh, you know, a year from now, maybe we'll, we'll start that process of moving into a better place, uh, but it's going to be a long, hard road. So I want to close out the show by asking the both of you, what will it take for us and we're going to knock on wood after a Joe Biden victory on election day? What are the steps this country will have to take in order to reverse this harm that was done during Trump's presidency and before? I mean, I think we need full honesty. That's the starting point. We need to be honest about all the crimes committed, all the injustices, uh, the systemic problems that led to Trump even being able to take office. We need to look at all of those and discuss them in plain terms. Uh, I honestly think we need Nuremberg-style trials for things like the abuse of migrants on the border. Um, we need some kind of uh, commission akin to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because the extent of criminality uh, is 
is so immense uh, and the complicity of our institutions is so immense. And I feel like that all needs to be brought to light. And then the other thing I'll just add real quick is that um, obviously in addition to to coping with the coronavirus pandemic and finding um, a manageable solution to that, we are going to be making every decision, you know, every political decision under the banner of climate change. And that needs to be taken into account into any kind of economic policies that are devised, political policies that are devised. We have a deep existential threat there. Um, and we have an apocalyptic death cult in the Republican Party. I know that sounds extreme, but that really is how they function. And I think it's clear to people, I think, to to a greater extent because of coronavirus, because you're watching them let all these people die. That is exactly how they're going to be as climate change gets worse. Um, And, you know, they're not going to do anything to stop it. If anything, they're going to accelerate it. So that threat needs to be, um, you know, foremost in people's mind, along with just a policy of absolute honesty, you know, no more false sentimentality about our institutions, no more American exceptionalism. You need to get very real with the damage that has been done and how that damage continues to be done about how enabling happens. I think if we're able to tackle that as a country, we may be able to get to a better place than we've ever been before. And it's going to be a very unpleasant process, but it's necessary and it means a better future for our children, a better future for our grandchildren. I do believe, even with all the depressing things I've said in this episode, uh, that that's possible. Yeah. And I would, I have a list as well. (laughs) We have to bring back the fairness doctrine that Reagan got rid of, which allowed Fox News to flourish and destroy our country from within. Uh, Putin's attack on our democracy would not have been successful if it weren't for all of the existing corruption he exploited and, and weaponized against us. And a big part of healing our country and strengthening our democracy and our rule of law is getting rid of the disinformation virus. And a very good way of doing that is bringing back the fairness doctrine, which says that all media must show both sides of the debate and and stick to that fact-based presentation. And that would put Fox News clearly out of business, which would be great. And that's that's sorely what's needed in our country. Uh, the other thing is, um, it's you mentioned earlier the, all the bombshell reporting on Trump and his taxes. Forbes came out recently with a calculation that Trump is $1 billion in debt, which makes him a huge threat to our nation's sovereignty because who owns that debt? And who's cashing in those favors? As uh, Senator Whitehouse said in the confirmation hearing of Amy Coney Barrett about all the mass amount of dark money that Republicans put into getting their judges elected, Senator Whitehouse said, you know, that money is not for free. They're doing it for a reason. They expect a return on that investment. So with that billion dollars that Trump owes and, and knowing what a disastrous businessman he is, his dad gave him a fortune that he 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 mismanaged with all his bankruptcies and failed businesses. He's not a smart businessman clearly and he rips people off and so he himself is not going to be able to come up with that money out of out of like out of being like a really strong business leader he's going to need to bring in favors and uh you know get rid of regulations and sign sign away land and all sorts of things as president of the united states to repay that money i mean how else is he going to do it 
uh, no credible institution will lend to him. So who, you know, the people that gave this money did it for a, a certain reason. And that reason is extremely dangerous to the United States and our sovereignty. So so in order to move forward and to, and to prevent another Trump from happening again, we must mandate by law that uh, no one can run for president unless they re- they release 15 years of their tax returns. And that's just a minimum, a minimum of 15 years of their tax returns. And that would also be uh, very good in protecting us from an Ivanka Trump presidency, because as we're always saying on Gaslit Nation, that's the end game. And there's reporting now to confirm it, all this talk of Republicans turning to Ivanka as the future of the Republican Party post-Trump, her father. And then the third thing is, you know, as somebody that has spent um, a decade plus studying the history of authoritarianism, namely in Ukraine, the reason why Ukrainians were so quick uh, and are so good at at resisting Russian aggression, they're so good at, at fighting it. I mean, the Kremlin, obviously Russia could invade all of Ukraine. The, the military is the second most powerful military in the world. And Ukrainians are able to resist them. The war, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is ongoing, of course. And um, but Ukrainians are very, very resilient in standing up to Moscow because they take their history of Kremlin aggression against Ukraine and the, and the brutal colonization of Ukraine extremely seriously. And that is a history of authoritarianism in, in Ukraine by the Kremlin and, and also complicit actors who themselves were Ukrainian against other Ukrainians. And so I think... Uh, what Ukraine has taught us is that the study of history, the understanding of our of our authoritarian history in America is essential to protect us against that authoritarianism from coming back again. So what I'm saying is we have to study American history as authoritarianism against black and brown people because that is what it is. That is what it is. And that is, you know, I think if anything came out of this, it was the knocking down, anything good came out of this, it was the knocking down of all of these uh, Confederate statues. And those statues are the equivalent of Nazi statues. And so we have to understand, as, a, as white people in America have to understand, that we are a country built on the history of authoritarianism, and that authoritarianism exists today for black and brown people who know very well the realities of a police state. And that is how we must start teaching and understanding in American history if we are to heal and if we are to create a uh, culture of vigilance against this threat and also uh, and also making this threat go away so we finally achieve true equality as a nation. Andrea and Sarah, the co-hosts of Gaslit Nation, thank y'all so much for putting together a clinic on on American kleptocracy and 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 much much more. I, I really appreciate y'all taking time to talk to Black Diplomats podcast. Oh, thanks for having us on. Well, thanks for making this show. It's so needed, Terrell. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.